Chapter 2 The Sacrament of the Kingdom As my Father appointed a kingdom for me, so do I appoint one for you, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Luke 22, 29-30 1. If assembling as the church is, in the most profound sense of the term, the beginning of the Eucharistic celebration, its first and fundamental condition, then its end and completion is the church's entrance into heaven, her fulfillment at the table of Christ in his kingdom. It is imperative to indicate and to confess this as the sacrament's end, purpose and fulfillment immediately after confessing the assembly as the church as its beginning, because this end also reveals the unity of the Eucharist, its order and essence as movement and ascent, as, above all and before all, the sacrament of the kingdom of God. It is no accident, of course, that in its present form, the liturgy begins with the solemn blessing of the kingdom. Today, we particularly need to remind ourselves of this end, because our school teaching on the sacraments, which took hold in the Orthodox East in the Dark Ages of the Church's Western captivity, makes no mention either of the assembly as the Church as the beginning and condition of the sacrament, or of her ascent to the heavenly sanctuary to the table of Christ. The sacrament was reduced to two acts, two moments, the change of the Eucharistic gifts into the body and blood of Christ, and the communion itself. Its definitions consisted in answering the questions of how, i.e., on account of what causality, and when, i.e., at what moment did the change occur. In other words, our school theology determined for each sacrament a consecratory formula inherent to the given sacrament and at the same time both necessary and sufficient for its accomplishment. Thus, as an example, in the authoritative longer catechism of Metropolitan Philoret Drozdov of Moscow, which was accepted by the entire Orthodox East, this formula is defined as the pronouncing of the words that Christ spoke at the institution of the sacrament. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink of it, all of you, this is my blood. And then the invocation of the Holy Spirit and the blessing of the gifts, the bread and wine that had been offered. When this takes place, the bread and wine are changed into the very body and very blood of Christ. The influence of the scholastic theology of the sacraments that underlies the consecratory formula is unfortunately evident in our own liturgical practice. It is expressed in the patent desire to single out that part of the Eucharistic prayer that can be identified with the consecratory formula to make it, so to speak, independent and self-contained. With this end in view, the reading of the Eucharistic prayer as it were interpreted by the threefold reading of the troparion of the third hour. O Lord, who didst send down thy Holy Spirit upon thine apostles at the third hour, take him not from us, O good one, but renew him in us who pray to thee. A supplication related neither grammatically nor semantically to the anaphora. With this same intention, we ritually and verbally single out from the Eucharistic prayer a dialogue between the deacon and the priest, whose essence lies in separate consecrations first of the bread and then the cup, and finally of the gifts together. Further testimony to the fact that we are dealing with a consecratory formula is the completely illiterate transferal of the last words of the benediction, quote, making the change by the Holy Spirit, end quote, from the anaphora of St. John Chrysostom to that of St. Basil the Great. As far as the other rites of the liturgy are concerned, they are either generally ignored, since they are unnecessary for the accomplishment of the sacrament and are thus not a subject for theological comprehension, or, as in the above-cited catechism, they are construed as symbolic illustrations of one or another event in Christ's ministry, whose recollection is edifying for the faithful in attendance. We will have to return later to this doctrine of a consecratory formula. For now, in this initial stage of our work, the important thing to note is that it isolates the Eucharist from the liturgy, and thus separates the Eucharist from the Church, from its ecclesiological essence and meaning. This separation is, of course, external, 
for the spirit of tradition is too strong in the Orthodox Church to allow a change in or betrayal of the ancient forms of worship. Nevertheless, the separation is a real one, for, in this approach, the Church ceases to perceive herself not only as the dispenser of the sacraments, but as their very object. They represent her fulfillment of herself in this world as the sacrament of the kingdom of God, which has come in power. The very fact that the Eucharist's beginning, the assembly as the Church, and its end and fulfillment, its realization as that which it is, the manifestation and presence of the kingdom of God, simply dropped out of the experience as well as the explanations and definitions of the Eucharist amply demonstrates the truly tragic damage of this approach and the reduction it contains. 2. But what is the cause of this reduction, and how did it penetrate church consciousness? This question is of immeasurable importance, not only for an interpretation of the sacraments and the Eucharist, but above all for an understanding of the church herself, her place and ministry in this world. We can best begin our analysis of this reduction with a concept that, although occupying an enormous position in all discussions of church worship, remains vague and obscure. This is the idea of the symbol. It has long been normal to speak of the symbolism of orthodox worship. Indeed, even apart from these discussions, one can hardly doubt that it is in fact symbolic. But what is understood by this term? What is its concrete content? The most prevalent current answer to this question consists in an identification of the symbol with a representation or illustration. When someone says that the little entrance symbolizes the Savior's coming out to preach the gospel, he understands by this that the rite of entrance represents a certain event of the past, and this illustrative symbolism has come to be applied to worship in general, whether taken as a whole or in each of its separate rites. And since this interpretation of symbolism, the flowering of which had begun already during the Byzantine period, is undoubtedly rooted in the most pious of feelings, it would occur to very few that not only does it not correspond to the basic and original Christian conception of worship, but actually distorts it and provides one of the reasons for its present decline. The reasons for this lie in the fact that symbol here designates something not only distinct from reality, but in essence even contrary to it. Further on, we shall see that the specifically Western Roman Catholic emphasis on the real presence of Christ in the Eucharistic gifts grew primarily out of a fear that this presence would be degraded into the category of the symbolic. But this could only happen when the word symbol ceased to designate something real and became in fact the antithesis of reality. In other words, where one is concerned with reality, there is no need for a symbol, and, conversely, where there is a symbol, there is no reality. This led to the understanding of the liturgical symbol as an illustration, necessary only to the extent that what is represented is not real. Thus, two thousand years ago, the Savior came forth to preach the gospel in reality. And now we illustrate this act symbolically in order to recall for ourselves the meaning of the event, its significance for us, etc. I repeat, these are pious and legitimate intentions in and of themselves. However, this type of symbolism is not only quite frequently utilized arbitrarily and artificially, thus the entrance at the liturgy is turned into a symbol of Christ going out, but in fact reduces 90% of our rites to the level of didactic dramatization. Not unlike acting out a procession on a donkey on Palm Sunday, or the mystery play of the youths in the furnace of Babylon. Such reduction deprives the rites of their inner necessity, their relation to the reality of worship. They become symbolical settings, mere decorations for the two or three acts or moments that alone provide, so to speak, reality to the liturgy, and which alone are necessary and therefore sufficient. This is demonstrated by our school theology, which long ago, in fact, dismissed the entire ordo of the Eucharist from its field of interest and attention and concentrated entirely upon a single moment, the isolated consecratory formula. On the other hand, it is also demonstrated, however strange it may seem, in our very piety. 
It is no accident, of course, that an increasing number of people in the Church find this piling up of symbolical representations and explanations disturbing to their prayer and to their genuine participation in the liturgy, distracting them from that spiritual reality, the direct contact with which is the very essence of prayer. The same illustrative symbolism that is unnecessary for the theologian is also unnecessary for the serious believer. 3. This separation, this contraposition of symbol and reality, is the foundation of that perception and subsequent definition of the sacraments, and above all the Eucharist, whose focus is the consecratory formula. This approach came to us from the West, where, in contrast to the East, the sacraments quite early became a subject of special teaching and definition. Particular attention should be given to the scholastic treatises De Sacramentis in its progressive development for the peculiar estrangement of the sacraments from the Church. This estrangement, of course, is not to be understood in the sense that the sacraments were established and function outside or independently of the Church. Rather, they are given to the Church. They are performed within her, and only through the power given her to perform them, and, finally, they are performed on her behalf. Yet, while being accomplished in and through the Church, they constitute, even in the Church herself, a special reality distinct in itself. They are special in their being established directly by Christ himself, special in their essence as the visible signs of invisible grace, special in their efficacy, and finally, special as the causes of grace, cause gratia. One result of the setting apart of the sacraments as a new, sui generis reality was the scholastic definition of the sacraments as being established only in view of man's fall and his salvation by Christ. In the estate of original innocence, man had no need of them. They are necessary only because man sinned and requires medicine for the wounds of sin. The sacraments are precisely this medicine, quote, Catum spiritualis medicamenta C adhibenter contra vulnera peccati. Finally, the sole source of these medicines is the Passio Christi, the suffering and sacrifice of the cross through which Christ redeemed and saved mankind. The sacraments are accomplished by the power of the Passion of Christ, in virtute Passionis Christi, which they apply to mankind, Passio Christi Catum Applicata Hominibus. Summing up the results of the development of Western sacramental theology, the Catholic theologian Dom Vonier, in his well-known book The Keys to the Doctrine of the Eucharist, writes, quote, The world of the sacraments is a new world created by God entirely apart from the natural and even from the spiritual world. Neither in heaven nor on earth is there anything like the sacraments. They have their own form of existence, their own psychology, their own grace. We must understand that the idea of the sacraments is something entirely sui generis. 4. There is no need for us to enter into a detailed examination of this system well-constructed and internally consistent though it may be. Enough has been said, I believe, to realize how alien this doctrine is to the orthodox experience of the sacraments, how incompatible it is with the age-old liturgical tradition of the orthodox church. But I say alien to experience, not to doctrine. Because the teaching on the sacraments, and above all on the Eucharist that we find in our dogmatic textbooks, patterned as they are on Western models and constructed in Western categories, not only does not correspond to this experience, but openly contradicts it. But when we speak of experience, what has been preserved from the beginning by the Church in her Lex Orandi, then the most profound alienation of Western sacramental scholasticism from this experience cannot but become obvious. The chief source of this estrangement is the Latin doctrine's denial and rejection of symbolism, which is inherent to the Christian perception of the world, man, and all creation, and which forms the ontological basis of the sacraments. In this perspective, the Latin doctrine is the beginning of the disintegration and decomposition of the symbol, on the one hand being reduced to illustrative symbolism, the symbol loses touch with reality and, on the other, it ceases to be understood as a fundamental revelation about the world and creation. 
When Dom Vonier writes that, quote, neither in heaven nor on earth is there anything like the sacraments, end quote, does he not indicate above all that, although the sacraments in any event depend on creation and its nature for their accomplishment, of this nature they do not reveal, witness, or manifest anything? This doctrine of the sacraments is alien to the Orthodox, because in the Orthodox ecclesial experience and tradition, a sacrament is understood primarily as a revelation of the genuine nature of creation, of the world, which, which however much it has fallen as this world, will remain God's world, awaiting salvation, redemption, healing, and transfiguration in a new earth and a new heaven. In other words, in the Orthodox experience, a sacrament is primarily a revelation of the sacramentality of creation itself. For the world was created and given to man for conversion of creaturely life into participation in divine life. If in baptism water can become a laver of regeneration, if our earthly food, bread and wine, can be transformed into partaking of the body and blood of Christ, if with oil we are granted the anointment of the Holy Spirit, if, to put it briefly, Everything in the world can be identified, manifested, and understood as a gift of God and participation in the new life. It is because all of creation was originally summoned and destined for the fulfillment of the divine economy. Then God will be all in all. Precisely in this sacramental understanding of the world is the essence and gift of that light of the world that permeates the entire life of the Church, the entire liturgical and spiritual tradition of orthodoxy. Sin is itself perceived here as a falling away of man, and in him of all creation, from this sacramentality, from the paradise of delight, and into this world, which lives no longer according to God, but according to itself, and in itself is therefore corrupt and mortal. And if this is so, then Christ accomplished the salvation of the world by renewing the world and life itself as sacrament. 5. A sacrament is both cosmic and eschatological. It refers at the same time to God's world as he first created it, and to its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. It is cosmic in that it embraces all of creation. It returns it to God as God's own, thine own of thy own, on behalf of all and for all. And in and by itself it manifests the victory of Christ but it is to the same degree eschatological, oriented toward the kingdom which is to come. For having rejected and killed Christ, its creator, savior, and lord, this world sentenced itself to death, as it does not have life in itself, and rejected him of whom it was said, quote, In him was life, and this life was the light of men. John 1.4 As this world, it comes to an end. Heaven and earth will pass away. And thus those who believe in Christ and accept him as the way, the truth, and the life live in hope of the age to come. They no longer have here a lasting city, but seek the city which is to come, Hebrews 13.14. But this is precisely the joy of Christianity, the paschal essence of its faith, this age which is to come, though future in relation to this world, is already in our midst. And our faith itself is already the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. It is, it manifests, and it grants that to which it is directed, the presence among us of the approaching kingdom of God and its unfading light. This in turn means that in the orthodox experience and tradition, the church is herself a sacrament. Historians of theology have many times noted that in the early patristic tradition we find no definition of the church. The reason for this, however, lies not in the lack of development of the theology of that time, as several learned theologians suppose, but in fact that in her early tradition the church was not an object of definition, but the living experience of the new life. This experience, in which we find also the institutional structure of the church, her hierarchy, canons, liturgy, etc., was sacramental, symbolical by its very nature. For the Church exists in order to be always changing into that same reality that she manifests, the fulfillment of the invisible in the visible, the heavenly in the earthly, the spiritual in the material.
Hence, the church is a sacrament in both of the higher dimensions we have indicated, the cosmic and the eschatological. She is a sacrament in the cosmic sense because she manifests in this world, the genuine world of God, as he first created it, as the beginning, and only in the light of and in reference to this beginning can we know the full heights of our lofty calling, and also the depths of our falling away from God. She is a sacrament in the eschatological dimension because the original world of God's creation, revealed by the Church, has already been saved by Christ. And in liturgical experience and the life of prayer, it is never severed from that end for the sake of which it was created and saved, that God may be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15.28 6. Being a sacrament in the most profound and comprehensive sense of the term, the Church creates, manifests, and fulfills herself in and through the sacraments, and above all, through the sacrament of sacraments, the Most Holy Eucharist. For if, as we have just said, the Eucharist is the sacrament of the beginning and the end, of the world and its fulfillment as the kingdom of God, then it is completed by the Church's ascent to heaven, to the homeland of the heart's desire, the status patriae, the messianic banquet of Christ in his kingdom. This means that all this, the assembly as the Church, the ascent to the throne of God and the partaking of the banquet of the kingdom, is accomplished in and through the Holy Spirit. Where the Church is, there is the Holy Spirit and the fullness of grace. In these words of St. Irenaeus of Lyons, it engraved the experience of the Church as the sacrament of the Holy Spirit. For if where the Church is, the Holy Spirit is also, then where the Holy Spirit is, is the renewal of creation. There we find the beginning of another life, new and eternal the dawn of the mysterious, unfading day of the kingdom of God. For the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, the gift of sonship, the pledge of future inheritance, the first fruits of eternal blessing, the life-creating power, the fountain of sanctification, through whom every creature of reason and understanding worships thee and always sings to thee a hymn of glory. From the Anaphora of the Liturgy of St. Basil the Great. In other words, Where the Holy Spirit is, there is the kingdom of God. Through his coming on the last and great day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit transforms this last day into the first day of the new creation and manifests the church as the gift and presence of this first and eighth day. Thus, everything in the church is by the Holy Spirit, everything is in the Holy Spirit, and everything is partaking of the Holy Spirit. It is by the Holy Spirit because, with the descent of the Spirit, the Church is revealed as the transformation of the end into the beginning, of the old life into the new. Quote, The Holy Spirit grants all things. He is the source of prophecy. He fulfills the priesthood. He gathers the entire Church assembly. End quote. Hymn of Pentecost. Everything in the Church is in the Holy Spirit, who raises us up to the heavenly sanctuary, to the throne of God. Quote, we have seen the true light. We have received the heavenly spirit. End quote. Another hymn of Pentecost. Finally, the church is entirely oriented toward the Holy Spirit. Quote, the treasury of blessings and giver of life. End quote. The entire life of the church is a thirst for acquisition of the Holy Spirit and for participation in him and in him of the fullness of grace. Just as the life and spiritual struggle of each believer consists in the words of St. Seraphim Aserov, in the acquisition of the Holy Spirit, so also the life of the Church is that same acquisition, that same eternally satisfied but never completely quenched thirst for the Holy Spirit. Quote, Come to us, O Holy Spirit, and make us partakers of your holiness, and of the light that knows no evening, and of the divine life, and of the most fragrant dispensation. End quote. Compline Canon of the Feast of the Holy Spirit. 7. Having said all this, we can now return to what we began this chapter with, the definition of the Eucharist as the sacrament of the kingdom, the Church's ascent to the table of the Lord in his kingdom. We know now that this definition slipped out of our scholarly, theological explanations of the liturgy, which were adopted by Orthodox theology from the West. 
The main reason for this was the disintegration in Christian consciousness of the key concept of the symbol, its contraposition to the concept of reality, and thus its reduction to the category of illustrative symbolism. Inasmuch as the Christian faith from the very beginning confessed precisely the reality of the change of the gifts of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, quote, this is indeed the very body, and this is indeed the very blood of Christ, end quote, any confusion of this reality with symbolism came to be seen as a threat to Eucharistic realism, and hence also to the real presence of the body and blood of Christ on the altar. This led to the reduction of the sacrament to the consecratory formula, which, by its very narrowness, guarantees in time and space the reality of the change, and this fear also led to the more and more detailed definition of the modus and moment of the change, as well as its efficacy. Hence the persistent reminders that before the consecration of the gifts, the patent holds only bread and the chalice contains only wine, but after the consecration we find only body and blood. Hence the attempts to explain the reality of the change by using Aristotelian categories of essence and accidents, and to describe the change as transubstantiation. Finally, we find here the source of the denial of the real relation of the liturgy, both in its many details, as well as taken as a whole, to the change of the holy gifts and the practical exclusion of the liturgy from explanations of the sacrament. Here and now, we must ask whether this understanding of the symbol and symbolism, their contraposition to reality, corresponds to the original meaning of the idea of the symbol, and whether it applies to the Christian lex orandi, the liturgical tradition of the Church. To this fundamental question I answer in the negative, and this is precisely the heart of the matter. The primary meaning of symbol is in no way equivalent to illustration. In fact, it is possible for the symbol not to illustrate. In other words, it can be devoid of any external similarity with that which it symbolizes. The history of religion show us that the more ancient, the deeper, the more organic a symbol, the less it will be composed of such illustrative qualities. This is because the purpose and function of the symbol is not to illustrate. This would presume the absence of what is illustrated, but rather to manifest and to communicate what is manifested. We might say that the symbol does not so much resemble the reality that it symbolizes as it participates in it and therefore it is capable of communicating it in reality. In other words, the difference, and it is a radical one, between our contemporary understanding of the symbol and the original one consists in the fact that while today we understand the symbol as the representation or sign of an absent reality, something that is not really in the sign itself, just as there is no real, actual water in the chemical symbol H2O, in the original understanding, it is the manifestation and presence of the other reality. But precisely as other, which under given circumstances cannot be manifested and made present in any other way than as a symbol. This means that in the final analysis, the true and original symbol is inseparable from faith, for faith is the evidence of things unseen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. The knowledge that there is another reality different from the empirical one and that this reality can be entered, can be communicated, can in truth become the more real of realities. Therefore, if the symbol presupposes faith, faith of necessity requires the symbol. For unlike convictions, philosophical points of view, etc., faith certainly is contact and a thirst for contact, embodiment and a thirst for embodiment. It is the manifestation, the presence, the operation of one reality within the other. All of this is the symbol. In it, unlike in a simple illustration, simple sign, and even in the sacrament in its scholastic rationalistic reduction, the empirical or visible and the spiritual or invisible are united not logically, this stands for that, nor analogically, this illustrates that, nor yet by cause and effect, this is the means or generator of that, but epiphanically. One reality manifests and communicates the other, but, and this is immensely important, 
only to the degree to which the symbol itself is a participant in the spiritual reality and is able or called upon to embody it. In other words, in the symbol, everything manifests the spiritual reality, but not everything pertaining to the spiritual reality appears embodied in the symbol. The symbol is always partial, always imperfect. For our knowledge is imperfect and our prophecy is imperfect. 1 Corinthians 13.9 By its very nature, the symbol unites disparate realities, the relation of the one to the other always remaining absolutely other. However real a symbol may be, however successfully it may communicate to us that other reality, its function is not to quench our thirst, but to intensify it. Quote, Grant us that we may more perfectly partake of thee in the never-ending day of thy kingdom. End quote. It is not that this or that part of this world, space, time, or matter, be made sacred, but rather that everything in it be seen and comprehended as expectation and thirst for its complete spiritualization. Quote, that God may be all in all. Must we then demonstrate that only this ontological and epiphanic meaning of the word symbol is applicable to Christian worship? And not only is it applicable, it is inseparable. For the essence of the symbol lies in the fact that in the dichotomy between reality and symbolism, as unreality, is overcome, reality is experienced above all as the fulfillment of the symbol, and the symbol is comprehended as the fulfillment of reality. Christian worship is symbolic, not because it contains various symbolical depictions, it may indeed include them, but chiefly in the imagination of various commentators and not in its own ordo and rites. Christian worship is symbolic because, first of all, the world itself, God's own creation, is symbolic, is sacramental, and second of all, because it is the Church's nature, her task in this world, to fulfill this symbol, to realize it as the most real of realities. We can therefore say that the symbol reveals the world, mankind, and all creation as the matter of a single, all-embracing sacrament. Now we can raise the basic question, what does the Eucharist symbolize? What symbolism unites into a single whole the entire ordo and all of its rites? Or, to put it differently, what spiritual reality is manifested and given to us in this sacrament of all sacraments? And this leads us back to what we began this chapter with, the identification and confession of the Eucharist as the sacrament of the kingdom. 8. The Divine Liturgy begins with the solemn doxology, Blessed is the kingdom of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. The Savior likewise began His ministry with the proclamation of the kingdom. The ringing announcement that it has come. Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1, 14-15 And it is with desire for the kingdom that the first and foremost of all Christian prayers begins, Thy kingdom come. Thus, the kingdom of God is the content of the Christian faith, the goal, the meaning, and the content of the Christian life. According to the unanimous witness of all scriptures and tradition, it is the knowledge of God, love for Him, unity with Him, and life in Him. The kingdom of God is unity with God, the source of all life, indeed life itself. It is life eternal, and this is eternal life, that they know Thee, John 17.3. It is for this true and eternal life in the fullness of love, unity, and knowledge that man was created. But man lost this in the fall, and by man's sin, evil, suffering, and death triumphed in the world. The prince of this world began his reign. The world rejected its God and King. Yet God did not reject the world. As we pray in the anaphora of St. John Chrysostom, And when we have fallen away, thou didst not cease to do all things, until thou hadst brought us up to heaven, and hadst endowed us with thy kingdom which is to come. The prophets of the Old Testament hungered for this kingdom, prayed for it, foretold it. It was the very goal and fulfillment of the entire sacred history of the Old Testament, a history holy not with human sanctity, 
for it was utterly filled with falls, betrayals, and sins, but with the holiness of its being God's preparation for the coming of his kingdom. And now, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, Mark 1.15. The only begotten Son of God became the Son of Man, in order to proclaim and to give to man forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and new life. By his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead, he has come into his kingdom. God made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, and has put all things under his feet, and has made him the head over all things. Ephesians 1, 20-22 Christ reigns, and everyone who believes in him and is born again of water and the Spirit belongs to his kingdom, and has him within himself. Christ is the Lord. This is the most ancient Christian confession of faith, and for three centuries the world, in the form of the Roman Empire, persecuted those who spoke these words for their refusal to recognize anyone on earth as Lord, except the one Lord and one King. The kingdom of Christ is accepted by faith, and is hidden within us. The King himself came in the form of a servant, and reigned only through the cross. There are no external signs of this kingdom on earth. It is the kingdom of the world to come, and thus only in the kingdom of his second coming will all people recognize the true king of the world. But for those who have believed in it and accepted it, the kingdom is already here and now, more obvious than any of the other realities surrounding us. The world has come. The Lord is coming. The Lord will come again. This triune meaning of the Aramaic expression Maranatha contains the whole of Christianity's victorious faith, against which all persecutions have proven impotent. At first glance, all of this might sound like some sort of pious platitudes, but reread what has just been said and compare it with the faith and experience of the vast majority of contemporary Christians, and you cannot but be convinced that there is a deep abyss between what we have said and the modern experience. One can say without any exaggeration that the kingdom of God, the central concept in evangelical preaching, has ceased to be the central content and inner motivation of the Christian faith. Unlike the early Christians, those of latter ages came, little by little, to lose the perception of the kingdom of God as being at hand. They came to understand it only as the kingdom to come, at the end and after the end, referring only to the personal death of individual believers. This world and the kingdom, which in the Gospels are set side by side and in tension and struggle with one another, have come to be thought of in terms of chronological sequence, now only the world, then only the kingdom. For the first Christians, the all-encompassing joy, the truly startling novelty of their faith lay in the fact that the kingdom was at hand. It had appeared. And although it remained hidden and unseen for this world, it was already present, its light had already shone, it was already at work in the world. Then, as the kingdom was removed to the end of the world, to the mysterious and unfathomable reaches of time, Christians gradually lost their awareness of it as something hoped for, as the desired and joyous fulfillment of all hopes, of all desires, of life itself, of all that the early church implied in the words, thy kingdom come. It is characteristic that our scholarly tomes of dogmatic theology, which cannot, of course, pass over the early doctrine in silence, speak of the kingdom in quite sparing, dull, and even boring terms. Here, eschatology, the doctrine of the final destiny of the world and man, is virtually reduced to the doctrine of God as the judge and avenger. As to piety, in other words, the personal experience of individual believers, the interest is narrowed to the question of one's personal fate after death. At the same time, this world, about which St. Paul wrote that its form is passing away, and which for the early Christians was transparent to the kingdom, reacquired its own value and existence independent of the kingdom of God. 9. This gradual narrowing, if not radical, metamorphosis of Christian eschatology its peculiar break with the theme and experience of the kingdom has had tremendous significance in the development of liturgical consciousness in the church. Returning to what we said above about the symbolism of Christian worship, 
We can now affirm that the church's worship was born and, in its external structure, took shape primarily as a symbol of the kingdom, of the church's ascent to it, and, in this ascent, of her fulfillment as the body of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit. The whole newness, the uniqueness of the Christian liturgia, was in its eschatological nature as the presence here and now of the future perusia, as the epiphany of that which is to come, as communion with the world to come. As I wrote in my Introduction to Liturgical Theology, it is precisely out of this eschatological experience that the Lord's Day was born as a symbol, in other words, the manifestation now of the kingdom. It is this experience that determined the Christian reception of the Jewish feasts of Passover and Pentecost, as feasts precisely of a Passover, from the present aeon to the one which is to come, and thus, symbols of the kingdom of God. But, of course, the symbol of the kingdom par excellence, the one that fulfills all other symbols, the Lord's Day, Baptism, Pascha, etc., as well as all Christian life hid with Christ in God, Colossians 3.3, is the Eucharist, the sacrament of the coming of the risen Lord, of our meeting and communion with Him at His table in His kingdom. Secretly, unseen by the world, the doors being shut, the church, that little flock to whom it was the Father's good pleasure to give the kingdom, Luke 12.32, fulfills in the Eucharist her ascension and entrance into the light and joy and triumph of the kingdom. And we can say without any exaggeration that it is from this totally unique and incomparable experience, from this fully realized symbol, that the whole of the Christian lex orandi was born and developed. It should now be clear why it was that with the weakening and the eclipse of the original eschatology, the liturgical symbolism of the kingdom became overgrown little by little with the wild grass of secondary explanations and allegorical commentaries. In other words, with the illustrative symbolism that, as I have tried to show above, in fact means the collapse of the symbol. The more time went on, the more the symbolism of the kingdom, so fundamental for the church, was forgotten. Inasmuch, however, as the liturgy, the lex orandi of the church, with all its forms and its entire ordo, already existed and was perceived as an untouchable part of tradition, it naturally came to demand a new explanation in the same key in which the Christian consciousness was beginning to apprehend the place and ministry of the church in this world. This was the beginning of an ever-deeper infiltration of illustrative symbolism into the explanation of worship, and, paradoxical as it may seem, in this process the otherworldly, heavenly reality of the Eucharist came to be included in this world, in its causality, its time, the categories of its thought and experience. While the symbolism of the kingdom of God, so inherent to and inseparable from creation, the true key of the church and her life, was reduced to the category of this unnecessary illustrative symbolism. 10. This process, to be sure, was long and complicated, and not some kind of instant metamorphosis, and we must decidedly affirm that, whatever its external triumph, illustrative symbolism has never completely succeeded in supplanting the original eschatological symbolism of the liturgy, which is rooted in the faith itself. No matter how much development took place, for instance, in Byzantine worship in the direction of what, in my introduction to liturgical theology, I termed external solemnity, no matter how overgrown it became with decorative and allegorical details, with the pomp borrowed from the empirical cult, and with terminology adopted from mysteriological sacredness, worship as a whole, as well as its deep intuition into the minds of the faithful, continued to be determined by the symbolism of the kingdom of God. And there is no better witness to this than the fundamental orthodox experience of the temple and of iconography, an experience that crystallized precisely during the Byzantine period and in which the holy of holies of orthodoxy is expressed better than in the redundant rhetoric of the symbolic liturgical interpretations. Standing in the temple we stand in heaven. I have spoken of the origins of the Christian temple in the experience of the assembly as the church. We can now add that, insofar as this assembly is undoubtedly conceived of as heavenly, the temple is that heaven on earth that receives the assembly as the church, 
It is the symbol that unites these two realities, these two dimensions of the church, heaven and earth. One manifested in the other, one made a reality in the other. And this experience of the temple, I repeat, has survived almost unchanged and unawakened through the entire history of the church, despite the numerous declines and breakdowns in the authentic traditions of the church, architecture, and iconography. This experience constitutes that whole that unites and coordinates all the elements of the temple, space, form, shape, icons, all that can be termed the rhythm and order of the temple. As to the icon, it is in its very essence a symbol of the kingdom, the epiphany of the new and transfigured creation, of heaven and earth full of God's glory, and it is for this reason that the canons forbid the introduction into iconography of any allegorical or illustrative symbolism. For the icon does not illustrate, it manifests, and does so only to the degree that it is itself a participant in what it manifests, inasmuch as it is both presence and communion. It is enough to have stood, be it only once, in the temple of all temples, Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, even in its present devastated and canonic state, to know with one's whole being that the temple and the icon were born and nurtured in the living experience of heaven, in communion with the peace and joy of the Holy Spirit, Romans 14.17. This experience was frequently darkened. Historians of Christian art often speak of the decline of church architecture and the icon. It is important to note that this decline usually came about by the whole of the temple of the icon, being weakened and lost beneath the thickening growth of details. Thus the temple almost disappears under a thick layer of self-contained decorations, and in the icon, Byzantine as well as Russian, the original wholeness is replaced by an ever-growing attention to cleverly drawn details. Is this not the same movement, from the whole to the particular, from the experience of the whole to a discursive explanation, and in short, from symbol to symbolism? And yet, as long as the Christian world, be it imperfectly and sometimes nominally, refers itself to the kingdom of God, the homeland of the heart's desire, this centrifugal movement cannot fully overpower the centripetal force. One might say that, at first and for a long period of time, the illustrative symbolism be it in worship, in the icon, or in the temple, developed inside the initial and ontological symbolism of the kingdom. The deeper and truly tragic rupture between the two of them, the initial replacement of the one by the other, began with the break from the patristic tradition and the coming of the long, and in many ways continuing, western captivity of the orthodox mind. It is not accidental that the luxuriant and unchecked flowering of illustrative symbolism corresponded in time with the triumph of Western juridicism and rationalism in orthodox theology, of pietism and sentimentality in iconography, of embellished pretty Baroque in church architecture, of lyricism and emotionalism in church music. All of these manifest one and the same pseudomorphosis of the orthodox consciousness. Yet, even this deep and truly tragic decline cannot be considered final. In its depths, the Church's consciousness ultimately remains untouched by all this. Thus, everyday experience shows us that illustrative symbolism is foreign to the living, authentic faith and life of the Church, just as scholastic theology remains foreign in the last analysis to such faith. Illustrative symbolism is at home in that superficial, showy, and routine religiosity in which a widespread but shallow curiosity toward anything holy is lightly taken as religious feeling and interest in the church. But where there is a living, authentic, and, in the best sense of the word, simple faith, it becomes unnecessary, for genuine faith lives not by curiosity, but by thirst. Just as he did a thousand years ago, so today the simple believer goes to church in order primarily to touch other worlds, Dostoevsky. And almost free, the soul breathest heaven unhindered, Vladislav Kodisevek. In a sense, he is not interested in worship in the way in which experts and connoisseurs of all liturgical details are interested in it. And he is not interested because, standing in the temple, he receives all that for which he thirsts and seeks, the light, the joy, and the comfort of the kingdom of God. 
the radiance that, in the words of the agnostic Chekhov, beams from the faces of the old people who have just returned from the church. What use could such a believer have for complex and refined explanations of what this or that rite represents, of what the opening and closing of the royal doors is supposed to mean? He cannot keep up with all these symbolisms, and they are unnecessary for his faith. All he knows is that he has left his everyday life and has come to a place where everything is different, and yet so essential, so desirable, so vital, that it illumines and gives meaning to his entire life. Likewise he knows, even if he cannot express it in words, that this other reality makes life itself worth living. For everything proceeds to it, everything is referred to it, everything is to be judged by it, by the kingdom of God it manifests. And finally, he knows that even if individual words or rites are unclear to him, the kingdom of God has been given to him in the church, in that common action, common standing before God, in the assembly, in the ascent, in unity and love. 11. Thus we return to where we begin, indeed to where the Eucharist itself begins, to the blessing of the kingdom of God. What does it mean to bless the kingdom? It means that we acknowledge and confess it to be our highest and ultimate value, the object of our desire, our love, and our hope. It means that we proclaim it to be the goal of the sacrament, of pilgrimage, ascension, entrance, that now begins. It means that we must focus our attention, our mind, our heart, and soul, in other words, our whole life upon that which is truly the one thing needful. Finally, it means that now, already in this world, we confirm the possibility of communion with the kingdom, of entrance into its radiance, truth, and joy. Each time that Christians assemble as the church, they witness before the whole world that Christ is King and Lord, that His kingdom has already been revealed and given to man, and that a new and immortal life has begun. This is why the liturgy begins with this solemn confession and doxology of the King who comes now, but abides forever, and shall reign unto ages of ages. It is time to begin the service of the Lord, the deacon announces to the celebrant. This is not simply a reminder that it is now opportune or convenient for the performance of the sacrament. It is an affirmation and confession that the new time, the time of the kingdom of God and its fulfillment in the church, now enters into the fallen time of this world in order that we, the church, might be lifted up to heaven, and the church transfigured into that which she is, the body of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit. Blessed is the kingdom of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen, answer the people. This word is usually translated as, so be it, but its meaning is really stronger than this. It signifies not only agreement, but also active acceptance. Yes, this is so, and let it be so. With this word, the ecclesial assembly concludes and, as it were, seals each prayer uttered by the celebrant, thereby expressing its own organic, responsible, and conscious participation in each and every sacred action of the Church. To that which you are, say Amen, writes St. Augustine, and thus seal it with your answer, for you hear the body of Christ and answer Amen. Be a member of the body of Christ which is realized by your all men. Fulfill that which you are.